It is a blessing to be here today, and you know, it, it is exciting to know that we belong to the Lord, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So that's 1 Peter chapter 13, or chapter 13, it's a different version of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And I want to tell you a little something up front. Today, uh, the title today is, What's a Christian to Do? And I told Heather, she said, I like that title. I said, well, I think I'm just going to get up here and ask the question, and then you guys come up with the sermon. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, no, I probably better not do that. Um, but the, the topic today is really about what does it mean to defend the faith? Um, what's a Christian to do? So if, if you've turned to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we read there, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that we have the blessing to be here as your people. We pray now that as we consider what you inspired to be written here through the hand of Peter, that you'll remind us of the times in which we live and help us to understand your will and how we are to surrender all to you, to, to be your people who are called to be uh, your precious saints. So we ask that you bless our time and that you'll give us understanding, ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are open, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it seems like we live in an age of uncertainty, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like, what's going to happen this year? It seems like we're just not really sure what's going to happen. You know, I hear a lot of things. People say, oh, bad things are going to happen. Other people say, oh, good things are going to happen. And it just seems like we're all uncertain and the only thing it seems we're certain about is we live in an age of uncertainty. Go figure. But think about it. You turn on the radio, you turn on television, you go online. What do you hear? You hear things about war. You hear things about crime, about pestilence, about instability of all sorts, um, anarchy, tyranny, even persecution against Christians. Welcome to 2024. So what's a Christian to do? Well, Peter tells us in this text, we're to do three things. Primarily, verse 15, he tells us, number one, in our hearts, we must set apart Christ as Lord. That's the first thing we should be thinking about what we're going to do this year. Secondly, be ready to have an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. That's an important thing we need to do. And thirdly, Peter tells us, we need to learn to be gentle and respectful towards non-Christians. That's a challenge sometimes. 
So what's a Christian to do living in this crazy, fallen world? Well, Peter says there in verse 15, to set apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. Well, what does it mean to set apart Christ as Lord? The phrase there, set apart, technically means to sanctify. To sanctify. That's what sanctification is all about. It's being set apart by someone or setting something or someone apart for a special purpose. We're to set apart, sanctify Christ in our hearts as Lord. You see, as a Christian, the most important thing to us is understanding who we serve. We serve the God of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth. And that no matter what we face, even though it may seem uncertain to us, he is in full control. That may seem hard at times, but that's the facts. And so we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. I uh, was thinking about the idea of sanctification. I was telling Margo years ago, one of uh, my favorite professors by the name of J. Edwin Orr. He was a professor of church history and revival at uh, Fuller University, or Fuller Theological Seminary, Seminary out in Pasadena, California. And he was asked one day to fill in for someone who wasn't able to speak at the chapel, and he was asked to speak on the subject of sanctification, you know, setting things apart for a special purpose. And he was bewildered because he really wasn't sure what he was going to say. So he uh, lived close to the campus, and he went home that afternoon to have lunch with his wife and daughter. And uh, he came home, and it was a cold day. Believe it or not, Pasadena can be cold at times. Um, and uh, he came home, and he walked into the house, and he, he just smelt this wonderful aroma. It was like, oh, what is that? It smells so good. And his wife told him, um, our daughter made you lunch today. And he goes, oh, that oh, smells so good. I'm so hungry. And, and he was sitting at the table, and his daughter brought him a bowl of the stew that she had made. And it smelled wonderful. It looked good. And she set it in front of her father and He just sat there and stared at it. And his wife said, what's wrong? And he goes, I can't eat that. What do you mean you can't eat that? What's wrong with it? And he goes, there's nothing wrong with the stew. I just can't eat it. Well, why not? Because of the dish. What's wrong with the dish? That's the cat's dish. (laughs) (laughs) And his wife said, well, Our daughter washed it out. It's clean. What's wrong? I'm sorry. That dish is sanctified to the cat. I'm not going to eat from that dish. That has a special purpose, and I'm not going to eat from that dish. So not that he was being a mean dad, but you get the picture. You know, I mean, I thought about, we have a dog at home. We love Sam. He's an 85-pound golden doodle. But I'm not going to eat from his dish. That's sanctified to Sam. So as Christians, when we think about what does it mean to sanctify Christ as Lord, well, first of all, we realize he first sanctified us, didn't he? He first set us apart for his purpose, for his work. And I I love the idea that, you know, I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I shall be saved because of Christ's sanctifying work. He has his hand on my life. He's put me right where I'm at, at this time, at this place, 
in these circumstances because he's doing a greater work that I could possibly ever even understand. I've been sanctified by him. But here Peter tells me, tells you, we're to sanctify Christ, something we do, in our hearts. What that means is he should have first priority in our lives. So as Christians, we are to make a heartfelt commitment to the Lordship of Christ and set him apart as our divine sovereign. What's going to happen this year? I don't know, but I do know this, that the Lord has his hand on my life, on your life, and the first thing I need to do is remember that. Lord, whatever comes, whatever you have for me, whatever takes place, be it war, be it, you know, health issues, whatever it may be, Lord, I know I serve you, and therefore you are sanctified in my heart because I recognize your lordship. You are the Lord. And um, the next thing Peter tells us to do is that we are to be ready to have an answer for that hope that we have in Christ. You see, hope has two dimensions. Um, David was speaking about hope in the sense of, gee, I hope everything works out. I hope I can do this. I hope we get to go there. And those are all legitimate kinds of a certain type of hope. But when the Bible talks about the hope that we have in Christ, it's not based upon, gee, I hope that Jesus comes back or I hope that I make it to heaven. It's not something we're anticipating as if maybe it will, maybe it won't. But no, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. For the Christian, the hope that we have in Christ is an absolute certainty. Because no matter how bad things get, one thing you and I know who know the Lord, we belong to him, he belongs to us, and that's why we have hope. Because where faith looks back at what Jesus has done, our hope is anchored in who Jesus is and what we know he will do. That's why I have hope, because I know he's faithful, he will never fail. No matter how bad things look, Jesus never fails. Boy, that brings hope. So the Christian or the unchristian might ask you and I, what's the reason that you have that kind of hope? What do you base that on? Peter tells us to be prepared to have an answer. Has anybody ever asked you why you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever been asked that question? No. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. Charles has. Okay. Yeah, we need to be ready, Peter says, to have an answer. The word answer there in the... Greek actually has the idea of a defense, not being defensive, but having a defense. It's the word where we get the English word apologetic. Now, when we say that we're to be apologetic, it doesn't mean someone says, oh, you're a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Why do you want to be a Christian? Oh, I'm sorry. I just, you know, that's, that's not what the idea there is. The word actually means in the Greek to have a well-reasoned answer. It comes out of the court system of that day that someone would be accused of something and they would have to go before the court and give an apologia. They'd have to explain why something was true or false that was said about them. And so the idea is that when we give an answer for that hope we have in Christ, why we hang on to him, why he is so dear to us, 
we are able to speak from reason. That's what the idea of have an answer is. It's literally, it's, it means to speak from, literally from logic. So it means if someone asks you, why should you trust in this Jesus who's so precious to you, who you've never seen, and look at the world around you, look at what things are a mess, we need to be able to give a well-reasoned answer. That makes sense? It's a defense. And it really means to think and talk about Jesus. So how many of you ever thought or talk, talked about Jesus? Anybody here? Yeah. And, and it's neat when, when you're able to, somebody ask you a question about him, you can say, you know, that's a good question. I got a good answer. I've been thinking about that. Let me share my thoughts. Let me give you my defense as to why I have hope in Christ. Yeah. So we're to have a well-reasoned answer. And I thought about this. I was telling Margo, I said, you know, I thought about during the early years of the Christian church, local citizens of the Roman Empire or loyal citizens of the Roman Empire often accused Christians of committing heinous crimes against the state. Oh, they're a Christian. You know those Christians. They should be arrested. They should be locked up. They should be executed because of their crimes against the state. Well, what kind of crimes? Well, they were accused of atheism. Christians were accused of being atheist. They were accused of being seditious. You know, they're a bunch of rabble-rousers. They're not loyal to the state. They were even accused by some as being cannibals. Why would Roman citizens who love their country, accuse Christians of being atheists. Well, if you were a Christian at that time, it was expected of you, especially in the, in, uh, the city of Rome, to worship who? Caesar as, as Lord. Caesar was considered to be a divine being, and you were to pay worship to him. You would offer sacrifices in his name. You would honor him because Caesar is Lord. He has brought Pax Romana. He's brought peace Roman style. Usually that meant at the end of a sword, (laughs) a spear. But as a Christian, if Christ is sanctified in your heart, could you, could I bend the knee to Caesar and say, Caesar, you are Lord. I hope we wouldn't do that. I hope we would be like these Christians and say, I can't worship Caesar. He's not divine. You're an atheist, you rotten little Christian. You're an atheist. See, in the Roman Empire, they didn't care who you worshipped as long as you worshipped Caesar as Lord. So you could be as religious as you want, practice any religion you want, but the number one person to honor was who? Caesar. If you didn't do that, you were considered no better than an atheist. And being an atheist, by not showing your allegiance to Caesar, was the same thing as being an enemy of the state. The second thing they would accuse Christians of was that they were seditious. You know, they would sneak off and hide out in 
of all places, areas like the catacombs. Now, I don't know about you, the catacombs were probably not a very nice place to stay. It was down underneath the city, down where the sewer area was, and rats, and who knows what else was down there. And there was also dead bodies down there, because that's where they would bury citizens in the catacomb. Now, why would the Christians go down into the dark, in the, in the damp and, and, and dingy areas of these catacombs? Why would they go down there? Because if you're going to worship Jesus rather than Caesar, if you're going to go and say prayers to the Lord of heaven and earth rather than giving lip service to some man who thinks he's God, well, you probably have to sneak off somewhere so that you could do that in private and in in freedom. So people would accuse these Christians of being seditious because, after all, they're not here during the festival games where we're, we're doing all sorts of interesting things. You know, we're watching people kill each other. We're watching people kill animals. We're, you know, having uh, sports in the nude. And what's wrong with these Christians? Not only are they atheists, they're seditious. They don't support the state. They don't like our culture. Who do they think they are? Yeah. But what about cannibalism? That seems strange that Christians would be accused of being cannibals because of their relationship with Jesus as Lord. Why would a Christian be considered a cannibal? (laughs) Well, think about this. While these Christians were down in these secluded areas worshiping the Lord in secret so that they didn't have to pay homage to Caesar... So that they could pray, they could worship, they could study God's word. They could partake of the Lord's Supper. What are those Christians doing down there in the dark? Well, they started getting reports that those Christians, those crazy Christians, were down there eating and drinking flesh and blood. They're consuming the body and blood of their sacrificial victim. You mean they're cannibals too? Now why would they think that? Maybe because when they were getting together and they were worshiping the Lord and they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, somebody overheard someone say, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take all of it. Partake. As we celebrate the Lord's death, What are they doing? Now, I have to tell you, um, Margot remembers this. When we were younger, the church we attended in Texas, where we were living at the time, I had invited a friend from work. And it was Sunday morning, wonderful wonderful group of folks and all that. But it it was the Lord's table that day. And he was standing next to me, and the pastor was talking about communion, and he had the the elements. He was holding the bread and the cup and, and he said, you know, this is the body and this is the blood and, you know, basically gave the invitation to come forward to partake. And so I was watching my friend who was kind of like, seemed really puzzled. What, what is this all about? Drinking blood and eating bodies, you know? What? And, you know, he, he just didn't understand Christianese. 
Sometimes we talk in Christianese and we forget people don't know that language. But I remember as we were going forward, the praise song at that time, the song of worship, was an old one. I don't know if Charles would remember this because it came from his neck of the woods back in 1973, I think it was. Um, But it was called uh, Gathered Now. Now, that doesn't sound weird, but the words went like this. Here we are, all together now, gathered around the table of the Lord. Eat his body, drink his blood, and we'll sing a song of love. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And I remember my friend looked at me and goes, I'm out of here. (laughs) So you can imagine... If you don't understand why Christians are sanctified unto the Lord and they have sanctified the Lord unto them, people who don't understand this see us as kind of strange. Maybe they are cannibal. Maybe the rumors are true. Maybe they're down there doing awful things. What do they do there behind those closed doors anyway? So they were accused of all sorts of things. And so these assertions made by various members of Roman society required an answer, a defense. Why do you do that? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you fitting in with the rest of us? So they required an answer from those accused of such activities. And Christians had to be ready to give a reasonable response in defense of their faith and practice. Now, Several years ago, Margo and I were asked to fill in in a Sunday school. Uh, The the lady who normally was there couldn't make it. So um, at the last moment, she gave us this curriculum that she was using. And so we're trying to figure out, well, how do we use this curriculum? Sometimes the curriculum's more complicated than the stuff I had at college. (laughs) And uh, so we got in there, and there was, what, about 20, 20 children between, what, first to fourth grade? Beautiful children. And we're sitting at the table with them, and we're going through this curriculum, and we noticed, like most people who attend church, they were doing this. And we're trying to go through this curriculum with them, and they're just kind of like, so we got this idea, well, let's just set the curriculum aside. And Margo said, how many of you would like to ask questions? And they all raised their hand. How, how many of you would, would, if you had the opportunity to ask God, what would that question be? And so Margot passed out these little yellow sticky notes, you know, you've seen them, and told, told them to write their question down on this little card. And Margot's got a lot of those in her Bible because they're precious. They're written in, in their handwriting, and it's precious. But I just kind of jotted down a couple of these questions. One of the kids asked, why, did, why do I get sick at least two times a year? That's a good question. Why do I get sick at least two times a year? Another child asked, God, why did you let my dad get sick with cancer? That's a, that's a tough question. Now, these are children. They're not adults like us. These are children. Someone asked, God, was it hard to let bad people kill your son? Wow, that's a profound question. My favorite, though, is this one. God... Did Jesus have to walk on water because he didn't know how to swim? (laughs) Well, think about it. How do you answer that? You know, the thing is, is 
I told Margot after class, I said, you know, these are not adults asking childish questions. These are children asking adult questions. And I was reminded that we need to remember that no matter what the age is, what the question is, it's important that you and I be ready to have an answer. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know how many times I've heard, I've read where children have grown up in church and they can recite memory verses, they can even cite catechisms, they, all that stuff. They've been baptized or you know, they're members and they go off into the world and they no longer are believers because they get hit with tough questions like, did Jesus know how to swim or was it just easier to walk? They get hit with these questions and they don't know what to say. And there are people, usually in university settings or in other settings, who have answers that are just the opposite of what you and I hope for. So we need, as Peter said, to be ready. But how can we be ready to give an answer, a reasonable answer for those who ask us, why do you have this hope in the Lordship of Christ? Well, there's a lot of things that could be said, but I think basically we need to be people of the word. How else are we going to know the will of God, the mind of God, the purposes of God, if we're not in his word. Now, I know there's a lot of wonderful books to read, a lot of wonderful television to watch, but if that's where most of our time is spent, we're not going to be ready to have a well-reasoned answer. We have to be people of the word. We have to know what God has revealed to us and given to us so that we can understand what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord. But we also need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who gather together and pray, pour our hearts out into the Lord. You know, I, I know this might sound strange, but I don't think prayer informs God of anything. Like, well, we better pray and tell God what's going on. And I don't think we should use prayer with the idea that we have to instruct God on what to do. Okay, now, Father, I don't know if you know this, but here's the case, and this is what you need to do. That is not prayer. That's presumption. Prayer is really a time that we come together collectively and individually and we pour our hearts out to the Lord and say, Father, what is your will? We need instruction. We need guidance. That's really what prayer is about. And we need to be people of prayer individually and collectively. How else are we going to be ready to share with people as we're going through circumstances why it is that we have hope even if we have cancer? even if we've lost a loved one, even if we're going through problems of all places in church. <laughs> What's going on? Well, I know this. I belong to the Lord. I'm not my own. And he's going to finish what he started. We have answers. But we also need to be people of faith. It's one thing to know the Bible. It's another thing to get together and pray for God's guidance and will. But we need to be people who honestly believe who, what God has said and who he is. You know, sometimes I like to use this comment. I know what I believe, but do I believe what I know? Now, that sounds contradictory, but it's not. Think about it. 
I could stand up here. I bet every one of us could come up here and quote a verse or, or give a, a, a statement about something we believe, and we really believe it, or we know it. But do we really believe it? Does that make sense? Sounds kind of weird, but think about it. I know what I believe. Let me quote to you from my favorite Bible passage, or let me quote to you from John Calvin, or let me quote for you from the Confession of Faith, or let me quote, you know, whatever our sources. We can, we know what we believe, but do we believe it? That's tough stuff. How can we be ready to give answers that are more than just some rote, petty comment? To really sit down and talk with people and hear what they say and interact with them. It's amazing. Even children have adult questions. That's amazing. But it's not just enough to be people of the word, people of prayer, people of faith. I think we need to be people led by the Holy Spirit. We can do absolutely nothing without the equipping and empowering of God's Spirit in our lives. I think sometimes we get caught up in thinking that, well, if I can be charismatic enough, entertaining enough, smart enough, educated enough, that that's going to answer the questions. I can't help but to think that when Peter and John were in the temple and they were sharing the gospel and the religious authorities were perturbed, who do these men think they are, these fishermen, these low-life, blue-collar people? They're ignorant. They have no education. Who do they think they are telling these things to the people here in the temple? And then it occurred to them they'd been with who? They'd been with Jesus. We need to recognize that though training, education, experience, all those things are important and should never be underestimated. They are important and they should be appreciated. It's not the same as looking to the work of the Spirit of God in our life who equips us. How does the Holy Spirit equip us? Did you know he gives every one of us gifts? Now, they may differ. We may even have the same kind of gift, but it may differ in the way we execute those gifts. But he also empowers us. He enables us to do what he has equipped us to do. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need his gifts. We need to bear the fruit that he brings in our lives when we sanctify Christ as Lord. Would you agree with that? Gee, that means we all have a part to play. We all have a place in the kingdom of God. Different offices, yes. Different callings, yes. Different ministries, yes. Different gifts, yes. But you know, it's the Holy Spirit who gives as he wills to those whom he has appointed to be those representatives. Wow, that's encouraging. So that's how we prepare ourselves to be apologists, those who have reasonable answers. So the third thing Peter tells us is that we need to learn, as Christians, to be gentle and respectful 
towards non-believers. What does it mean to be gentle and respectful towards others? As people ask us, why do you have this hope? What do you do as Christians? Well, we're to be gentle and respectful. The word gentleness in the passage here before us is a word that means kindness, meekness, forbearance. And when the Bible talks about being meek, it's not talking about being weak. You know, I'm just, you know, I, I, I love Jesus and don't hit me, please. That's not meekness. Meekness is just the opposite. Meekness is strength under control. It's the type of strength that says, you know, I feel like punching you right now. (laughs) But I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be meek. I'm going to restrain that because I care about you. That's gentleness. That's where the words, I guess, is this okay to say nowadays, gentlemen, gentlewomen, using those terms, a gentle person is someone who says, or someone who has the ability, has the capacity to do more than what he or she is doing, but keeps that in check and exercise gentleness. And so, when it comes to being gentle, when it comes to sharing the gospel with others, we depend on the Holy Spirit to do the work of changing hearts and minds. We don't depend on ourselves. You ever talk to somebody and poured your heart out about who Jesus is, what he's done, and why they need to come to Christ, only to be rejected? Yeah. And you're thinking, how can I get through to that guy? You can't. But the Holy Spirit in you can get through to that person. Jesus in John's gospel said, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He's talking to his disciples. The Holy Spirit will be with you. That's preposition, para. Para, alongside of you. He's going to be with you. But he's not only going to be with you, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, he will be in you. The preposition there is the word in in the Greek. It means he'll be dwelling in you. Isn't that amazing? That the Spirit of God today, right here, right now, is with us. He lives within us. Our bodies are the temple of the living God, we sang. But Jesus also said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's another preposition. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you the dunamis, the power to do what he's called you to do. I can't reach these people. I have to be ready to give an answer but while I'm, pray- while I'm talking, hopefully I'm praying, Lord, please open this guy's eyes. Lord, please open this woman's heart. That's what happened to us. Think about it. When you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, something happened. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's called regeneration. Or as we used to say, we were born again from above. What happened? I don't know, but man... I'll tell you, that guy was talking and something just hit home in my, my heart and I just knew. That's why it's important to be gentle. We can't get people in a holy headlock and hit them with our, our Bibles or if they're confessional, hit them with the, the, you know, the, the confession of faith. 
You know? No. We have to speak gentle, be gentle, knowing that as we give the answer as to why we have hope in Christ, we know that the Lord will call people. He will change people. So we have to be gentle, Peter says. Let me read a passage of how Paul puts it this way. I think it's great. It's in uh, 1 Timothy. Excuse me. It's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read this for you. Paul says here in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 22, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, and love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. (laughs) Because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Indeed, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's powerful. You know, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's not right. We live in a world that's in dead in trespasses and sins. And sometimes we Christians have to remember that when these zombies, spiritual zombies say, why do you believe in Jesus? You know, that we don't run the other way or we don't think, ooh, walking dead, get away from me. No, we realize I've got to be kind. I've got to be gentle. I've got to care about this person. I've got to be prepared. Because how do I know that God's not going to use me at that time, in that situation, no matter what's going on, to reach this person? So we're to be gentle. But notice Peter also says that we're to show respect. We're to be gentle and show respect. The word respect is the word Phobos, it's where we get our word phobia from. Anybody here have any phobias? I know some people, if I ask them, would you come up here and stand with me? Not me. I have a friend who has a phobia of crowds. He doesn't like to be around people because it just freaks him out. The word respect here is that word phobia. But it also has not only the connotation of fear... It also has the idea of concern. Have you ever been so concerned for someone you're afraid for them? Have you ever loved somebody, a family member, a friend, and you see their life and it's really going the wrong way, and you say to them out of concern, I'm afraid for you. I fear what may happen to you. That's a form of phobia. My wife is a retired fire inspector, and she understands the importance of having a proper fear of fire. There's a right place for fear in the life of Christians as well as non-Christians. But there's also a sense that this word respect is used in terms of reverence towards God. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. I reverence him so much that I sanctified him in my heart. But I think here in this context, Peter is using this term respect when it applies to an 
attitude of consideration for the thoughts and feelings of those who question our commitment to Christ. We're not here to beat people over the head with our knowledge and our, you know, our achievements and all that. We're here to share the love of Christ with people. And as such, we can only do that not only out of gentility, but out of respect. Out of the type of respect that says, I'm concerned for them. Because, you know, there's only two kinds of people in this world, technically, two groups. A lot of subcategories, but the two kinds of people in this world are saints and ain'ts. And if you ain't a saint, you ain't. And if you ain't a saint, you're not going to heaven. What's the alternative to heaven? If, if you, when you die tonight, if you die tonight, I shouldn't say when you die tonight, they're going to come looking for me if something happens. Did you have any intentions in that, Stan? What happens if you passed away tonight? Where would you go? You don't know? Well, I'm going to change my sermon here. We're going evangelistic now. Where do we go when we die as, as Christians? Heaven, yes. Thank you. You, Heather, I'm glad you've got that hope. We're going to heaven. But what happens if you die and you don't know Jesus? Where do you go? What's that, Lisa? Don't be talking like that in church, sister. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Heather says you go down. That's she's She's using gentle language, Lisa. Anyway, you know, I, I often get a kick out of it. Have you ever, have you ever been uh, in a situation where maybe you were not well and, and somebody somebody's asked you about it and, and uh, you say, yeah, I'm really I'm feeling better now? And, and they'll say, well, it beats the alternative. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've even said that. Think about that. I had one guy, I was at, at a court hearing, and... Uh, he, he asked, hey, you doing okay? And I said, oh, I wasn't really feeling that well. And, and uh, he says, well, you know, it beats the alternative. And I thought, I've got an opportunity to talk to this guy. I said, well, what's the alternative? Well, he goes, well, you know the alternative. I said, no, when I die, it's going to be glorious. What are you talking about? How do you defend that answer? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Because he saved me. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And when I die, I'm not going to the alternative. I'm going straight into the arms of my Lord and Savior. You see, we can have a healthy fear, but that fear is not some strange, ooh, get away from me, you're an unbeliever. Ooh, you're, you, know, you, you, know, you have piercings in your face, or you have tattoos all over you, or, or whatever it is that you might find offensive or concerned. Might be a, well, I better not say that, get in trouble. (laughs) We don't fear that. What we are is we are concerned for people's well-being. Um, And so when they ask us, why do you care? We can tell them with a clear answer. Does that make sense? Now, I thought about it, something that happened to Margo and I when we we were engaged. Right? Okay. And... uh, we're going on 49 years. Two weeks, three weeks will be 49 years. Um, she's still putting up with me. She's either very patient or very hopeful. <laughs> hopeful. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we met at a Christian coffee house in, in Killeen, Texas. And we were stationed in the Army at Fort Hood. 
And so a lot of us Christians, we got together at this coffee house, and it was what a powerful time. I, I look back at it and I think, you know, I, I would almost trade anything to have that kind of experience again. We saw people coming to, I mean, people who still today, after 50 years, I talked to them and they're, they're serving the Lord, they love the Lord. So people were getting saved, as we said. Um, but we decided that Christmas, it was going to be our first Christmas together, not as husband and wife, but as in, in, engaged people. And so... I lived in a house full of a bunch of guys, and Margot had a, a small little mother-in-law apartment sort of thing where she lived. And so we thought, well, why don't we have a kind of a, just a Christmas present for everybody, or gift, a gathering, for everybody who doesn't go home for the holiday? Because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are stuck there at the base. They can't go home. So we thought, oh, that would be great. So we went out to this field to cut down a Christmas tree. And it was okay because Margo knew the owner of this property, and he said, oh, yeah, go ahead. So we went out there. We thought, let's get a Christmas tree, bring it back, decorate it, and then when everybody comes, we can you know, celebrate Christmas. So we went out to this field, and we're looking at all these trees, and lo and behold, here's, this is the tree. This is the, that's it. And we fell in love with this tree. It was about this tall, about three feet tall. And we're looking, oh, perfect. So I had a little handsaw because that was really about the, the extent of my knowledge of how to cut trees down. And I, <laughs> you know, I cut it down and I put that thing over my shoulder. And I'm feeling really pretty good about cutting a tree down for my, my sweetie and me, you know, and our friends. And so we're walking back to the car. And there off in the distance is this horse on a hill. And I didn't think too much of it at first. It was a cold day. It was like three degrees, I think. It was cold. And I noticed this horse is up on this hill shivering. And it was a mangy-looking horse. It was one of the most unkept horses I'd ever seen. Not that I saw a lot of horses growing up in Southern California. But this horse looked kind of ominous. And, and it was standing there, and it was watching us. And I started noticing this steam coming up. <laughs> You ever seen a horse do that? And, and then it started doing this with its front leg. And, and I'm like thinking, what's this horse going to do? What's going on here? What, what is this? And I'm thinking, Marvel, well, get behind me. She wouldn't listen to me. I said, get behind me. I don't know what this horse is going to do. And about that time, boom, 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 boom. And that horse stopped right in front of us, and I'm standing with this tree, because I'm going to take this tree out, this horse out with a three-foot Christmas tree that weighed probably a pound, right? I'm going to protect my bride-to-be. And I'm standing there, and this horse is, boom! And it went silent, and all of a sudden it says, and there's tears coming out of the horse's eyes. And it's, and it's bowing his head down. And about that time, I'm standing with this tree, I see this hand coming over, putting her hand on the horse's head and under the chin and said, oh, you poor thing, you must be cold and hungry and lonely. And, and the horse leans over to Mar- Margot's petty and say, oh, you poor thing. And I'm standing there thinking, <laughs> thanks a lot, horse. <laughs> but it made me think about that because I thought, you know, we're, I showed the wrong kind of fear. I was afraid that this horse was going to hurt me and my bride-to-be. I was going to defend us against this attack of this, you know, horse. So where I was afraid, Margot was concerned. 
she was concerned about this horse's well-being. I was ready to take the horse out with my little tree. Instead, she reached out of concern and showed gentleness to this horse. And I thought about that today or the other day when we were talking about this. I thought, you know, how often do we treat people like that horse? They look strange to us. We don't like the way they're acting. We don't want them to talk to us, stay away from it. If you do, I'm going to get nasty. Only to find out when they actually approach you, they start pouring their heart out. And you find out that they're going through things that you've never had to go through. And you, you start to listen to them. And they start asking you, what should I do, Stan? Why would this happen? Why would God let my daddy get sick with cancer? Why would, why would my wife of 30 years walk away from me? Why would God allow me, I've worked all my life, and now in this economy, I have nothing to show for it, and I don't know how I'm going to pay my taxes on the property this year. Those are real things that people have, and it affects them in ways that sometimes seems awfully ominous, like, oh, he's coming this way, I don't want to talk to him. I, oh, she's coming this way, I don't, want to, I, don't want, I don't want to hear what she has to say. That's the wrong kind of fear, isn't it? We're to be ready to have an answer. So like with my dear wife, she reached out to this horse who was obviously cold, tired, lonely, afraid, and she showed some compassion and comfort. That's why we need to, as Peter said, be gentle and respectful. So as we end now, I'd just like to say that Christianity has always been under attack by those who reject the authority of God's word. There's nothing new today. Christianity has never had a time of, hey, we've got it all together, everything's wonderful. Christianity, biblical Christianity, not nominal Christianity, not churchianity. Churchianity and Christianity are two different things. But biblical Christianity, you know, those crazy Christians who actually believe this is God's word and this has the final say in everything. People like that, people like us, have always had people who are demanding us to give a reason why they should believe what we believe, live the way we live. We've always been under attack. So what's going to happen this year? I don't know, I've got some crazy ideas. I see things, I hear things. I'm wondering if there's a catacomb nearby that we could uh, visit if need be. I know there's an old abandoned house on the other side of the river over here. It looks like it was probably built in 18 something. Uh, who knows? But Christianity has always been under attack. There are some who I hear today even blaming Christians for the wrongdoings of, of life. You know, they blame Christians for imperialism, bigotry, inequality, slavery, oppression of all sorts. You Christians, you Bible-believing Christians, it's your fault. I hear that all the time. Do you ever hear that stuff? You hear that today? You read that? Yeah. Um, there's others who consider Christians to be ignorant and foolish because of their archaic beliefs and traditions. You really believe God created the world? Don't you know everything came into existence out of nothing? 
Really? <laughs> well, how'd that happen? <laughs> um, think about some of the things the world considers us to be ignorant about. Do you really believe the nuclear family's the best way? That's awfully oppressive. I read the other day that uh, the, yeah, I'll name it, it's, it's public. United Methodist Church in England has told its ministers to quit using abusive language, terms such as husband, wife, son, daughter. And if you say something, it's because you're a bigot. You're hateful. You're a hater, they say. You're ignorant. Is it going to get worse? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But I know that stuff is happening. So, again, welcome to the year 2024. And what's a Christian to do? What are we to do in this time in which we live? Well, Peter says, in our hearts, we must set apart Christ as Lord. We need to be ready to have an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. And we need to learn to be gentle and respectable towards non-Christians. That's what we need to do. Now, I was asked to speak this week and next week, so that's a warning. So if you don't want to be here, I understand. We may not be here because we maybe get snowed out. Praise the Lord. (laughs) But if you come back next week, we're going to speak on what's a Christian to do, part two. Because all of this has to do with how do we relate to the world outside of this fellowship, outside of the Christian world. There's a world out there. There's more of them than there are of us. How do we relate to people inside Christian circles? And so next week, we're going to ask the question, what is a Christian to do in terms of contending for the faith? Today, we talked about defending the faith. Next week, we're going to look at, well, how do we contend for the faith? Because there are a lot of attacks, even within organized Christianity, I call churchianity, that's undermining the foundation of the Christian faith. So we're going to look at that next week. So um, I hope you'll come and hear what we have to say about that. But let me end with this. I want to quote uh, a man by the name of Norman Geisler. He uh, was a Christian apologist. Um, But he said something really, really important, I think, in his book called... uh, When Skeptics Ask, page 14, if you look it up. Unbelievers, this is what Geisler says, quote, unbelievers have good questions. Christianity has good answers. And God has told us to give them the answers they're looking for. Amen to that. Would you join me with prayer? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you that you have called us to be your people You've chosen us out of the world, and yet you have us in this world to be a light in dark places, to be salt in areas that is putrid and needs to be cleansed and purified. Thank you that you've given us this calling. And yet we acknowledge to you that oftentimes we get discouraged, we give up. There are times that we don't see the use of carrying on, but Lord, help us to be reminded to sanctify you in our hearts every day. Help us to be 
mindful of those around us so that when they ask their questions, we can, in gentleness and respect, listen to them, think about what they're asking, and then share from your word, share from our own testimony of what you've done in our lives. We pray this year that we will see many come to know you and that you would use us to be your spokesperson in this community to millions of people who come through here every year. And Lord, until you come, help us to be mindful of the time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.